This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. There is, um, I don't know, I think there's some kind of metaphor in that. Some kind of, that's like a, that whole thing, that's like a sermon illustration waiting to happen, right? Something about blindness and I don't know how to make it work right now, but uh, that was, that was great. Um, all right, well, good morning, everybody. And here we are, we're in, man, we, this, is, this, is, this is awesome. Guys, this is awesome that we are together at advance. We get to have these days together to have fun and to make memories and laugh a lot to be together, to have great conversations, parents and young people and friends. We're here to, man, eat great food. Did you guys have the eggs this morning? Awesome, so good. And <laughs> sleep well. No. Um, but we get to hear from God's word. We get to pray. We get to sing together. This is a gift. I was telling my kids this morning, we were watching the sun come up out there over the bluff. You should do it because uh, it's beautiful. And we're just talking like a lot of people go through their whole lives and never get to have something like this. So what a gift this is. How do we thank God for this? So open up your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 4. A few of you have already asked me questions about, like, hey, I want to study Revelation more. I want, to, I want to understand this better. And don't worry, I have book recommendations for you. And so I think tonight, when we begin the session, I'm going to go through a couple of books that if you want to study this more and get a better understanding, will help you. All right, so we'll, we'll talk about that tonight. So Revelation chapter 4. As you're turning there, I want to tell you, last week, just last week, my family took a family vacation to Washington, D.C. I grew up in Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C., so it was a little bit like coming home. My parents, one of my sisters, still live there, and we did it up. We did all the sites. We went to the Smithsonian. We did the Air and Space Museum, Mount Vernon. We did the International Spy Museum, which, if you're ever in D.C., is totally awesome and worth it. And one of the highlights of any D.C. trip is walking the mall and seeing all of the monuments and memorials and stuff, right? And that's, it's a, it's a classic tourist thing to do. We did it upright with like cameras around our necks and backpacks full of water bottles and stuff, just, you know, happy as can be walking around. And these trips, they, um, when you set out to do one of these things, you, you, you get down there early in the morning, nine, 10 o'clock. It's not that hot yet. The, the like oppressive DC humidity hasn't really set in. And uh, you know, you, you start out like really adventurous. You start walking, you know, you're walking fast. You feel like you know where you're going. You're making fun of the people on the Segway tours. That's a, that's a, a big part of any DC trip. Do you guys know what a Segway is? It's got like the little two wheels and a little platform, a little stick comes up and you kind of steer it. And these people, they wear these dorky helmets and they're like big, a little wobbly. And so like, ah, look at them, <laughs> you know, we're the cool kids. Um, and so that's part of a DC trip. You got to do that. And then these things go through phases, right? You start out, you start the day strong and you're like, man, this is weird. This is DC. This is history. This, we're doing this. And within an hour or two, man, you're dying because now it's 94 degrees and a thousand percent humidity and you've walked 37 miles. You're soaked in sweat. You're trudging through down these sidewalks. And like, you're thinking, man, I would do anything for a Segway right now. Like I'm put on that helmet. Sure. Like anything, right? And so one of the things we saw while we were down there was the Lincoln Memorial, right? You can't miss it. The Lincoln Memorial is gigantic. It's at one end of the mall. As you come into D.C., bam, there it is. It's like right on the river. It's iconic, and it's, it's amazing. It is, this, it is this impressive thing. So what's, I, I think it's, it's, it's a little surprising, though, when you hit it, because 
it's so big and these huge columns and all of these stairs and the view is phenomenal. But the whole thing about the Lincoln story, right, is like these humble beginnings, right? The whole thing about Lincoln is like, you know, log cabins and split rail fence and like homespun jokes and his kind of long, lanky way about him. And, um, but in the Lincoln Memorial, if you go up the steps and you walk inside, there in the Lincoln Memorial is this gigantic statue of Abraham Lincoln sitting on a throne. That's interesting. You think about this, like here's this guy who grew up with an ax in one hand and probably leading a mule in the other or something. He was a great orator, but he was a simple, like straightforward country guy. And here he is sitting on a throne. It's huge, this stately throne. I've read a lot about Lincoln, but I have never read anything about him sitting on a throne in his life. But here in death, the statue of Lincoln, he sits on a throne as a symbol of magnificence and power and authority and dignity. And the idea of that memorial is to impress upon future generations the greatness of the one who occupies the throne. That's what the Lincoln Memorial is all about, right? And so turns out there is also a throne in the book of Revelation. And just like the Lincoln Memorial, what this throne is for is to symbolize and to indicate a seat of power. That from a throne, a person of great authority rules. And so in chapter 4, we're going to look today at the throne that is in heaven. We're actually going to look at chapters 4 and 5. These two chapters go together. And these chapters, they are not the center of the book as you count the pages right? 22 chapters, that'd be like around chapter 11 and 12. But these two chapters are the heart of the book theologically. They are the heart of the message of the book of Revelation. And you'll see what I mean, I think, as we go. Everything else that happens in the book of Revelation is meant to connect back to these two chapters. They are so central and so essential to the book of Revelation that we need to take some time and understand we're going to keep reading, and if you just sat down today and read through the book of Revelation, you would read about dragons and earthquakes and lightning and thunder and rumblings, and you would read about war and famine and pestilence and all kinds of terrible calamities. But through it all, we're supposed to keep one eye on the throne. Through all of that, the throne is supposed to be central. So now these two chapters together, it's 25 verses. It's a little bit longer section. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it in segments as we go through. Rather than just read it all at once, we're going to take it in some pieces. Okay? Now, kind of like last night, what we're going to see again here is that the book of Revelation, it is meant to just stretch our imaginations to the breaking point. We're going to come across things here that, that like don't even make sense, that's hard to understand, but we need to try to picture it. Try to imagine this scene. All right? I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Why don't we pray and then I'll read these 11 verses. So, Father in heaven, thank you for this book that teaches us about your son and about the way the world really is and how to live well in the world as it really is. We pray today that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and help us to set our hearts upon all that you show to us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, Revelation 4, we're going to read 1 through 11. <clears throat> After this, I looked, and behold, 
a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of God to us. So, chapter 4. I just read all of chapter 4. This, this is a vision. Look at how it begins. John explains, he says, After this I looked, and behold, here is what he saw. I don't know, he woke up one morning, he's having his quiet time or something. He looks up and he's like, there's a door in heaven. And if you see a door in heaven... You should go in, open it, see what's behind it, right? So he sees this vision and he is invited inside. And this happens a few times. Revelation actually gives us several glimpses into heaven. And the longest and greatest of those is at the very end of the book, chapter 21 and 22. And we're going to look at chapter 21 tomorrow morning. We're going we're to go home with a vision of heaven. That's going to be fantastic. But for now, what we see is not just heaven, but a very particular part of heaven the throne room of God. So look at verse two. He looks in, he says, behold, I saw a throne that stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So let's just, like we could pause right here. This much, just this much is powerful. If we think about who John is and where he is and why he's there. John knew a thing or two about thrones. He is a subject of the Roman Empire. There is a Caesar in Rome who sits on a throne, who rules over all of the known world at the time. And John is a political prisoner. John has been sentenced to exile. This is basically like life in prison. That's what that would have meant to them. They're like, we don't want this guy. Send him to this island of Patmos. What he did as a follower of Jesus Christ, because he refused to bow down and worship the emperor, they said, well, it's not quite bad enough to just kill him for 
but let's exile him. So he knew about the authority of a throne because that authority that was in Rome had the power to give him a life sentence of exile in prison. And John looks and says, whoa, it's not the only throne. Here's another throne, a better throne, a throne not on earth, a throne in heaven. So just, we're like two verses into this, and already John's world is being transformed. He's saying, oh, there is a bigger and better throne. Do you think that Caesar on his throne is powerful? Think about this. This man, Caesar, commanded armies, conquered the known world. Julius Caesar went as far as England, conquered that, and came all the way back. I mean, these people, the Romans knew a thing or two about taking over the world. Do you think the president in the Oval Office is powerful? What John sees here is that there is a throne that is over every other throne. And the one who sits on this throne rules every other ruler. He presides over every president. He governs every governor. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. John's not content, though, just to tell us that there is a throne. He tells us a little bit about it. What we learn first is that the one who is seated on it is beautiful beyond description. Look at verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Okay, Jasper and Carnelian are precious gems, right? And if you've ever seen a, a beautiful gemstone in somebody's ring or on a crown and you move that thing in the light and it just sparkles and it catches the light different and different like that okay that's i'm not even sure exactly what he's trying to say john can't find words for this he's like i like gems i don't know man precious stones it sparkles it's awesome he this he's wow that this is all he can do is to tell us this is amazing and we learn here that there is an audience right? This throne is, is not like, in Buckingham Palace in England, there is the throne room of the queen. And you can go in and it's like, there's just up against the wall. There's, they're actually kind of humble little chairs. They're not, they're not quite what you would think for the queen of England. I mean, it's, it's a cool room and everything, but you can sort of imagine, I don't know, maybe if the queen has an extra 15 minutes in the day and wants to feel better about herself, she might just go sit on that throne. And, but she's just, she'd just be in that room by herself. And in this throne room, the one who sits on the throne is never alone. Around this throne are 24 elders. You see that there in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, symbolizing their purity and devotion to the Lord, with golden crowns on their head, symbolizing their authority in their own right. And so these 24 elders... There are 24 of them. Let me tell you something about numbers, the way, the, the way that numbers work in Revelation. Numbers in Revelation are both literal and symbolic, right? We should think, yeah, there really were. Like, he counted them. Oh, yeah, 24. Okay, so there were, really tw there were literal 24 thrones around this one throne. But numbers in Revelation are always packed with symbolic meaning. And so the number 24 is significant because the number 12 is significant. Right? So what happens throughout Revelation is you get numbers that are joined together. And so those symbolize different things. This, gets, this is like a whole, it's a rabbit hole. You can go down. Like you can get lost in that thing if you're not careful. But there are 24 of them. 
Well, is the number 12, does that ring any bells to you from the Bible? Think about 12. Where do we have 12? Well, in the Old Testament, you have 12 tribes of Israel. And in the New Testament, you have 12 apostles. Now, 12 plus 12, 24. So these 24 thrones represent all of God's people from all time. The Old Testament, everything before Jesus. The apostles represent the New Testament, everything after Jesus. In other words, these 12 elders, these 24 elders, are gathered around the throne representing all of God's people come together in devotion to God to worship and to serve Him. All God's people for all time are represented before the throne always. Whew, love that. But there's more. It gets weirder. <laughs> because look at verse 6. He says, around the throne there are these four living creatures and they are full of eyes this is the weird part full of eyes in front and behind so the are uh, they are wise they have great knowledge and they have each of these four living creatures has a different face did you notice that as we went through so this would be interesting i don't know what they're he doesn't really tell us what their bodies are like i guess they have wings maybe they're flying maybe they're standing their wings are there we don't know what their bodies look like, but they have, they have, each of them has a different face, right? And so look what it says. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, John didn't just like, it's not like yesterday he went down to the Patmos Zoo and just kind of came back with like, yeah, these were my favorite animals. These were, these are great. I like these guys. These animals represent something. Let's think about what they are, right? The lion, the greatest of all wild animals. The ox, the strongest of all domesticated animals. The eagle, the apex predator of all birds and all other kinds of animals, reptiles and fish and everything else. And man, human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, made in the very image of God himself. And so here are the noblest and the strongest and the fastest and the wisest of all of God's creation. And they together, these four creatures, the eagle, the lion, the ox, and humanity, they represent all of God's creation. Just like all God's people are always represented before the throne, now all of creation itself is represented before God's throne all the time. And all creation together has been brought together to worship God. These four living creatures, verse 8, whatever their bodies look like, they have six wings. Oh, and there's the eyes again, full of eyes all around and within. John, let's make sure you get this about the eyes. They have a lot of eyes, full of eyes, wise, knowledgeable. They see, and they never stop seeing, and they never stop singing, and what they sing is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In the ancient world, if you, uh, you didn't have email where you could like, you know, command B and like bold a sentence, you know, they didn't have emojis. Be like, yeah. you know. So the way that they emphasized, if they really wanted you to get something, they would repeat it. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. So everybody who heard him was like, oh, oh, this is like really true. So holy, 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 to repeat something three times 
is to underline it and bold it and italicize it. Make sure you get this. The one that is on the throne is holy. They sing it. It says here, they never cease to say, but then you see how it's, it's indented. This is poetic language. And, and throughout the book of Revelation, there are songs. What happens in Revelation over and over again is people sing their worship to God. And I think we should think about this a minute. We're kind of used to this, right? Because in church, we come and what we did it this morning, we, like we, we get it, we sing, we, we kind of sing a lot. I think we sing a lot more than most people, right? Think about that. We come to church, you go to your small group, maybe you go to your, your youth meeting or something, you come here to advance, and we sing. Um, we sing because we want to praise God, we're extolling His virtue and His majesty, but we don't do this in other parts of life, right? It's not like you go to a restaurant and like the mac and cheese is just on point. He's like, dude, this is so good. You know what? I can't even help myself. You stand up, amazing place. You know, you don't do that. Um, the, the, you're grateful, you know, your, your barber you know, squeezed you in on a, on a busy day. You're just, man, dude, what a great guy. You know, hey, I'm so moved right now. Thank you for shaving me. You don't do that, right? Um, I don't do, do you guys, I don't do that. Um, I don't sing my praises of other things very often. I think the only time you really see this, like soccer does this. Soccer fans get it. Soccer fans understand worship. Now, they're, they're worshiping the wrong thing, but they get how worship works, right? Ole, 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 ole. Like just, wow, singing. It's like 90 minutes of just nonstop singing. They get it. Soccer fans, I know you're out there. <laughs> they, they, they get the singing and the worship. Singing happens. Here's why this is in Revelation. Singing happens when words, when just words aren't enough. That's why singing happens. Singing is an expressive, an emotive, right? It, it, it conveys emotion. As we're singing this morning, like those, those words, if I just read the words of those songs, I'd be like, yeah, that's good. But when I sing them, I feel the joy and the faith and the hope and the gratitude that are in those words. Don't you? I mean, that's what singing does for us. It's a way of saying something better than we could say it just by talking. And so it's good that we understand that Revelation is full of songs, more than any other book of the Bible, except for Psalms, which is just a song book. And what do they worship him for? They worship him for who he is. They worship him, verse 8, holy, holy, holy. They worship God for his character. This is what God is like. He is holy. That word holy, it means two things. It means he is different. High, lifted up, exalted, unlike us. He is not subject to frailty. He does not get tired. He does not wake up in the morning with a sore back because he slept on an unfamiliar mattress. He's not worried about getting stung by a bee at breakfast. He's not like us. And it means that he's pure. He is without sin. He can't even stand the presence of sin. So they worship him for who he is. They also worship him for what he's done. Look at verse 11. Worthy are you to receive glory and power for you created all things. So these living creatures watch the sun come up over a beautiful valley. And they think, wow. Worthy are you for creating things. This morning, we watched a bee. We let it, we left him alone. We watched this bee land on the eggs and do his little bee thing. 
and break off a little piece of egg, a little tiny piece of egg and fly away. <laughs> Bees like eggs. I don't know. Th this little bee, we were looking at how these skinny, tiny little wings. How does he do it? God made him to fly. Worthy are you, O Lord, because you created all things. And here's the thing. Falling down and worshiping, it's not something that happens just in heaven. It's not something that only some people do. This isn't something that like, is just for church people. Falling down and worshiping, the, it says here that the elders, the, the living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped him. Well, people fall down and worship all the time. It doesn't look necessarily like this, but everybody falls down and worships something. Right? This is an important thought because if you're not worshiping Jesus Christ, you're worshiping something else. Everybody worships. Everybody was made to worship. Everybody loves stuff. Think about, just this is so natural in the world. When you come across something that you like and you appreciate, don't you want to tell other people? You want to invite them into your worship? Dude, we tried the best ice cream shop last night. Man, I had the Rocky Road. <laughs> Big chunks, marshmallow, peanut. Oh, awesome. Right? You want to bring people into that. You want to tell them about it. You want them to join you in your appreciation of the thing. That's a function of worship. And if you're not worshiping Jesus Christ, you are worshiping something else. So young people, this is for you. If you are not worshiping Jesus Christ, if your life is not devoted to worshiping Jesus, to falling down, whether or not you ever actually get on your knees and kneel, you know what I mean, in your heart, laying yourself down before the Lord and saying, I am yours. If you're not worshiping Jesus Christ, you're worshiping something else. Who or what is that? It's what you spend your time thinking about when you don't have something else to think about. It's what you really don't want to lose, what you're willing to sin, to keep, to hang on to, what you want to get more than anything else. It might be the people that you want to be around or the, the things that you want people to say about you. Maybe you bow down and worship your reputation. Maybe you care most about what other people think about you. You want people to like you. And you don't want them to not like you. And you're willing to say things or do things that might even be ungodly so that people will think you're cool or that, so that you can be part of that inner ring. Maybe you bow down and worship comfort. Maybe you are lazy at school or at home. Maybe you love food and snacks. Maybe you don't want to serve around the house. You worship an easy day with nothing to do. You just want to have it laid back. Maybe you bow down and worship being up to date. Maybe you want to have the latest and the greatest on hairstyles and clothes and shoes or fashion and celebrity gossip, the latest movies, the latest songs. And that's your thing is you got to be in the know. And the worst possible thing is something happening without your hearing about it. Everybody worships something. And if it isn't Jesus Christ, you're worshiping something that is hollow and fleeting, something that cannot deliver, something that you will worship and it will do nothing for you. It's a counterfeit God. And so Revelation 4 helps us to see that the one on the throne is the only one worthy of our worship. I don't know if I actually said when I started this point the... Uh, what the first point is. If you were taking notes, the very first point was God reigns from his throne. 
That dawned on me now as I'm hitting the second point. So God reigns from his throne. That was point one. But we also see that God reigns over something. And so we're going to read some of, of chapter five now. And we're going to see the second point, if you're taking notes, is that God reigns over his world. So we're going to read the first four verses of chapter five. Then, so if this vision wasn't enough, if everything he's seen so far wasn't enough, he, then I saw, <laughs> there's more, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, I'm going to stop there. That's a good place to stop. So the one on the throne has something in his hand and it's a scroll. You guys can picture this, right? Kind of rolls like this, two things. This is a very unusual scroll. First, it's written on the front and the back. That almost never happened in the ancient world. They would get one side really smooth, but then it was almost impossible to get the other side smooth enough to write on, super expensive to do. You would never do that. So to have a scroll that is written on the front and the back means this is an, a, a priceless, incredibly expensive scroll. And it has a lot written on it. Scrolls are big. You can fit a lot on a scroll. And it's sealed with seven seals. Think uh, here, picture like a piece of wax that's dripped on there and, you know, a king takes his ring and like impresses his, his sign into it. So it's sealed with these seven seals. And an angel is asking, who is worthy to open the scroll? So just picture John has just seen, wow, there's this throne and there's... there's elders all these little thrones and four living creatures and then now there's this huge angel he's like who is worthy to open this thing john's like, i don't know and he begins to weep what is going on here <laughs> what is this scroll thing about well if we keep reading what we'll discover is that this scroll is the plan of world history especially of God's plans to save his people and judge his enemies. So this is like a football team's playbook. If a quarterback in a huddle doesn't tell the team what the play is, no one will know what to do. And John is concerned that if nobody can open this scroll, how will God's plan of salvation go forward? We'll be stuck. We'll just be left with this chaos and all this evil in the world, and there'll be no hope for salvation. That's why he begins to weep. He understands this scroll is the key to God's plan of salvation. Jesus did his thing, but now how is that going to work out in the world? Caesar is still on the throne. The Romans are crushing the Christians. The church is in exile. What, how, what, what is going to happen? If the scroll isn't opened, God's plan for salvation and judgment won't be put into action. Now, just like we saw a moment ago, the fact that there is a throne, that should give us a kind of comfort. The fact that there is a scroll should give us a kind of comfort too. What is written on that scroll? God's plan for all of human history. That scroll is in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. 
right? That scroll is in his hand. It is ready to be used. It's not just like under glass, you know, break in in case of emergency or something like that. It is ready to go. And so when your life feels chaotic and out of control, you remember there is a scroll. This part of your life is part of God's plan. It's written down somewhere. When you feel weak and powerless to bring about a change in your circumstances, the scroll is in the strong right hand of him who sits on the throne. God gets what he wants, and he does all that pleases him. And this is a plan of salvation. Yes, it's also a plan of judgment and doom and disaster for all God's enemies. But for God's people, it's a plan of salvation. So if you are a Christian, this scroll, sealed by the king, in the right hand of the one who is on the throne, is a picture of hope for the present and for the future. And so it's no wonder that John begins to weep loudly. It's sealed up. Nobody can look into it. Nobody can open it. What is going to happen? And he wept loudly, it says. But fortunately, there's more to read. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 now. And one, of the, one of the elders, so you've got these 24 little thrones, one of the elders, I picture him sort of turning around behind his throne, like looking around at him saying, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne if you're taking notes this is the third point god reigns through his lamb god reigns from his throne he reigns over his world and he reigns through his lamb Someone has been found who can open this scroll. One of the elders says to John, hey, stop crying already. It's going to be all right. And the elder tells John who it is. Look what the elder says. He says, behold, weep no more the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He says he is a lion. He, this is the king of the beasts. And he is of the tribe of David. Remember David from the Old Testament? The warrior king the man after god's own heart whatever image you have in your mind of david it should be something like russell crowe's character from gladiator he's a bad dude he is strong and he's a warrior but he's a man with a sensitive heart it also says that he was a man after god's own heart he loved god he is devoted to the father this is the true return of the king so john hears john hears that the one who can open the scroll is a lion. And then he turns and he sees. This happens a number of times in Revelation. As you read through Revelation, watch for this. This happens like, I think, five or six times. John will hear one thing, hear something described, and then turn and see it, and it's different. And the, the seeing and the hearing, it's the same thing, even though the picture is totally different. The seeing then interprets and explains the hearing. It happens a bunch, so watch for it as you read. It's really, it's, it's cool. So here, John sees 
Well, he hears, I'm sorry, he hears of a lion. The one who's worthy to open the scroll is a lion. But he turns and, what kind of lion? What kind of, tell me more about this lion. What is this lion like? Oh, he's a lamb. <laughs> I thought you said he was a lion. Because a lion and a lamb are pretty much like opposite ends of the, of the animal kingdom, right? A lion, big shaggy mane, nothing but strength. Just fearsome. Bangs, all, like you don't mess with a lion. Like a sheep, a lamb, just, yeah, they're soft, they're cuddly. I mean, you don't want to snuggle one or something, you know? Yeah, they're, they're weak. They're frail. They're helpless. It's a picture. The, the lamb is a picture of humility and submission to the will of the Father. But not only that, so this, this lion that he's heard of turns out to be a lamb that he sees. Not only that, it's a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The book of Revelation is full of paradoxes. How can something be a lion that is also a lamb? How can something that has been slain stand? Standing like it's been slain? Standing like it's been slain. I've not spent a lot of time butchering animals. By not a lot of time, I mean like never. Um, but I do know enough that if you butcher an animal, it doesn't stand up anymore. I know that. You know that too. I saw a lamb standing as though slain. What are you talking about? Well, the only way that a lamb could stand after being slain is if it was brought back to life. And the stain of its blood and the scar of the cut across its neck are still there, but it has overcome death. And now it stands like a lamb who has been slain. Paradoxes, we have to think through these paradoxes. These are not like John is just sloppy. Oh yeah, a lion and a lamb, yeah, whatever, just mash them up. That'll be an interesting little combo of zoological features for all my friends. No, no, this is very intentional. We're supposed to take these paradoxes together. All the strength and the nobility in a lion joined with all the humility and submission of a lamb. Standing as though slain. Conquering and conquered. Was the lamb conquered or did it conquer? Which is it? Well, yes, it's those. <laughs> and this lamb, we keep reading, this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns mean strength and eyes mean knowledge and wisdom and seven is the number of perfection. And so symbolism here is a perfect power and perfect knowledge. And this then is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy to open the scroll because he is the lion who is the lamb, who stands as though slain, who died for his people and yet lives forevermore. What you will learn as you read the book of Revelation is that Jesus is unlike anyone else. There is no one else and nothing else in all of history that has ever stood as though slain. The reason you've never read that anywhere else is because it's never happened at any other time. There is no other lion that is also a lamb. A lion cannot be a lamb. A lion is a lion. If we go to the zoo and find a lion, it is a lion. It wants to eat you. And if we go to the zoo and look at a lamb, a lamb is a lamb. It cannot be a lion. As hard as it might try, it is not going to roar. They are what they are. But here in Revelation, Jesus Christ, the point of all this, Jesus Christ is like no other. How can these totally different things happen together? Well, only because he's Jesus Christ. Strong as a lion, gentle as a lamb, dead and alive forevermore.
Whew. He is not just a good teacher. He's not a guy who is just carried along by current events. He is a lion, always perfectly in control. He is the king of everything he sets his eye upon. Fearless, unbeatable, unshakable. But he gave himself, he gave himself up like a lamb, slain, killed, destroyed, but rose again, defeating death to save his people. He came to save. Listen, if you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, this is our Jesus. This is our Savior. This is who we worship. We worship him because he's not just a, like better than most people. We worship him because he's different and he brings together all of the best of everything that we love and hold dear. He is a lion, fierce, bold, and strong. He is a lamb who died in your place. May this picture comfort you May it give you courage. How good to know, guys, how good it is to know that our Savior has overcome. How good is it? Think about this. How good is it to know that we have a lamb standing as though slain? He has conquered death. He has risen from the death. Where, O oh death, is your sting? He has defanged death. He has bought you now by his blood and brought you in to all that victory over death and sin and sickness and tragedy and rebellion and everything else. But if you are not a Christian, and I know that some of you are not, and you know, some of you know who you are. You know you have not yet given your life to follow Jesus. You have not yet submitted yourself, given yourself over to him entirely. There is some part of you that you are still holding back. Come to Christ. Come to this Jesus. If you are not following Jesus, why not? What on earth could this world offer you that would compare to this? There is nothing, there is no one else as great and as glorious as this. There is no one else that has to offer what Jesus has to offer. No one else can save. No one else rises from the dead. No one else has the power of a lion, but the gentleness of a lamb. Where else could you go? What are you waiting for? Repent and believe. There is nothing in this world that compares to the beauty and the value and the dignity of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else in this world that will delight your soul like Jesus Christ. Nothing else here on this planet will ever make you happy. But if you have Jesus Christ, you will find happiness in almost everything in this world. There is nothing else in this world that will save your soul. But you can turn to him this very morning, right now, you can pray a simple prayer of repentance and faith. Right now, you can say, what have I been doing? Why have I been wasting my life on this other stuff? And you can say, Jesus, I've been wrong. You can pray these words, Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive my sins by your blood. Make me your child. I want to live for you forevermore. Do you know what will happen? Then you will become a Christian. 
And this Jesus will be your Savior. He will be your lion who is a lamb. He will be your lamb standing as those slain. You can trade everything in this world that is all going to fade away and rust and burn and rot for everything that is in this world and the next that will last forever. And if you do, if you do, you will join the worshipers in Revelation and in this room and throughout the world and in all of history. Look at the, the worship that happens next. So John sees this vision of the lion who is the lamb, of the lamb standing as those slain. And here's what happens next. Look at verse 7. And when he, this is the lion who is the lamb, when he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, so he takes the scroll. <laughs> Just picture this in your head. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a scene. The lamb takes the scroll. He is worthy to open it and to oversee God's plan of salvation for all of human history. And everyone who watched that happen says, let's worship him. So then, the 24 elders, representing all of God's people, 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the New Testament, all of God's people for all time, and the four living creatures representing all of creation, the best of wild animals, the best of domesticated animals, the eagle in the air, and all of the wisdom of humankind, all join in worship. And it says everything that, everything that is above the earth and in the earth and under the earth and in the sea, all creation joined in there is no corner of the globe no corner of even the universe left where worship is not resonating for the lion who is the lamb why verse 9 for you were slain this is it this is the pinnacle this is the the very core the essence of the reason that all of creation rumbles and thunders with the worship of God. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
He ransomed people from every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation. There will be, there will be Christians gathered around the throne, worshiping from all, for all eternity from every continent, from every country, from every city. God plans to save for himself a great and numberless people. He will be praised in every language. He will be praised by every people. Heaven will be the most diverse, most beautiful place you've ever seen because he is bringing together nations and languages, all different colors of skin, all different kinds of hair, all different tribal and national customs, all subjected to the worship of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a picture. What do we do with this? Well, we worship. We join. What we do here is we join them. If you see this, and this thrills your heart, let's lift our voices. Last night, we learned that the book of Revelation is about obedience. This morning, we see how the book of Revelation stretches our minds to amaze us with a vision of a risen and reigning lion who is a lamb who is the son of God. If he is this powerful and this beautiful and this wise and this loving, what else can we do but worship? There is no one like him. There is no one else that deserves our praise and adoration and affection. No one else is worthy to rule over history. And no one else would or could give his own life to save sinners and then raise, rise from the dead. Worship is more than the time of singing together on Sunday morning or advance. It's more than that. Worship is a way of life. It's devoting all of your life and all of your mind and all of your time and all of your money, all of your affections and all of your ambitions and putting them in the service of Jesus Christ. It's like John falling on his face as though dead. It's a posture of heart and it's a way of life. We're starting to understand the book of Revelation if it takes our breath away. When we don't know whether to jump for joy or fall on our faces as though dead. Worship is a way of life. I said a moment ago that worship is more than the singing that happens here. But you know what? It's not less than that. The singing that we do here, when we lift our voices and we sing with all our hearts and we devote all our faith and our joy to worshiping the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That is worship. So if this vision of Jesus amazes you and impresses you, if it delights you, let's do something about that. Let's worship God in our singing and let's worship him in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this vision of the throne room of heaven. Thank you for the scroll, your plan for all of human history. Thank you that there is no one else who is worthy to open it except for the lion who is the lamb, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has taken the scroll and we know that he is now in charge and he oversees all of your plan of redemption and judgment. Help us to worship. Help us to worship with our voices as we sing with all our hearts. Help us to worship with our lives as we live devoted lives in your service, for your glory, and the fame of your name alone. Father, we love you, and we love your son. Help us to love him even more as we see him as he truly is. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.
Are you guys beginning to get the picture of how important Revelation is? Isn't it, I mean, just amazing, this apocalyptic literature, how just with a few words, a vision for us of Jesus can capture so many chapters of the New Testament. It's like one vision of these horns and these eyes, you know, representing his power and knowledge. And just, it opens our eyes to see how amazing Jesus is. And so we're going to spend about 10 minutes right now just doing discussion time as families. So I have three questions for you. I want to ask you to stay in here because at the end of our discussion time, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to give you directions for the game we're going to play at 11. So I don't want you outside because um, we have a few twists this year and I'll make sure you hear directions. So just stay there. And then with your family, um, we're going to have these three discussion questions. And the purpose of these is just to kickstart conversation. So when we hear God's word proclaimed to us and we're taught about Jesus. We want to take that teaching and we want to fellowship about it and talk about it. We want to apply it to our lives. And it doesn't mean these 10 minutes are, okay, that's it, we applied it. But the goal is always, let's kickstart conversation as a family that we can take with us on the drive home or the dinner table or next week we can go back over these messages and we can listen to them and apply them to our lives. So that's kind of the goal right now is just to have a little kickstart conversation as families. So three questions uh, for you. So how did the visions from Revelation stretch your view of God? What about the vision stuck out to you? What about the vision of the throne do you want to take into your week? How will these visions make a difference and help you in day-to-day -day life? And then he, Mr. Whitaker gave us some categories of things that we could be tempted to worship other than Jesus Christ. So what are you tempted to worship other than Jesus? So 10 minutes to talk about those, and then I'll come back up and give some direction for our next game. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.